This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to another episode of Check the Locks podcast. I'm John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into a new terrifying true crime case. Olivia, before we get started, both you and I are under the weather, uh, feeling a little rough today. So I know for me, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. You fighting through. I know you've had a little bit of a rough week. So how's it, uh, how's it going for you? Well, y'all just have to excuse my voice today for this episode. Um, it has been a rough week. Um, I've been sick for about a week, really not getting any better. And then my house got struck by lightning, so it's been a whole thing. So, But I'm here. The house is up and running. Everybody's safe. I'm on the men's, and so I'm looking forward to recording these episodes. And the good news is no COVID. Both of us have yep. tested. We're both negative for COVID, so that's good. But even though we're both feeling under the weather, we love doing these episodes. We love the fact that you're listening. We love the fact that you know people are engaging in the Facebook group and on the socials and things like that. So sickness be damned. We're going to be here. We're going to do an episode. And this week is your episode, Olivia, and you kind of sent me a sneak peek. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty excited for it. Tell me a little bit about what we're going to be covering this week. I have to say, first off, your episode last week of Larry Jean Bell, I've gotten text messages and tons of feedback and a lot of 10 out of 10s on the deadbolt test. 
So I feel like I have really big shoes to fill. So while I was laying in bed for the last like four days, what else did I do but hunt down a great case? And I think I might have found your match, but we'll just have to see how it goes. But this week I'm going to talk about Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom. It was a murder that took place in Knoxville, Tennessee in the early 2000s. Yeah, I'm familiar with the case. However, Knoxville is about three hours from me. I know it was like a national news story, but I got to be honest, I just don't know much of the details. So I'm super excited to get into it and to find out what happened just a few hours away from here. Yeah. So um, if you're ready, we can go ahead and jump right in. I'm so ready. Okay. It was just a few days after everyone had celebrated the new year ringing in 2007. In a college town where the partying continued, Shannon and Christopher were planning to go to a dinner date and then to attend a friend's birthday party. Shannon had gone to her friend's house in the Washington Ridge apartment complex earlier in the day, but she went ahead and told her friend to go ahead and head to the party as she was waiting for her boyfriend Christopher to pick her up for dinner, and then the two of them would attend the birthday party together. At around 8 p.m., Christopher arrived and met Shannon at her silver forerunner. The couple were sitting in the parking lot, Shannon in the driver's seat, and Christopher standing in the doorway of the driver's door hugging his girlfriend, when suddenly they were looking down the barrel of a gun. At the same time, Lamarcus Davison was having some trouble in his life. He was broke, careless, and his means of income came from selling drugs on the street. He was a known criminal in Tennessee for robberies and carjackings. He invited his brother, Latelvis Cobbins, to come down to Knoxville to celebrate the New Year's. The two had not seen each other in a while as Davison was in jail for a short stint. Latelvis Cobbins traveled from Kentucky, and he brought along his girlfriend, Vanessa Coleman, and his friend, George Thomas. Just like Davison, all three of his new house guests were jobless and along for the ride. Davison lived in a house on Chipman Street in Tennessee. There were reports that Davison was dating a young lady named Daphne Sutton, who soon left him on January 5th because of a domestic dispute. So my question as I was researching is how did these paths cross? As Shannon and Chris were embracing one another, Davidson had other plans. He and his brother, Latelvis Cobbins, and friend Eric Boyd were ready to solve all their issues and carjack the young couple. Boyd and Davison quickly aimed their pistols at the couple and forced the couple into the backseat of Shannon's car. Cobbins quickly jumped in the white vehicle they were driving and followed behind the forerunner, soon arriving at Davidson's house on Chipman Street. And what happens next is unfathomable. So this is already a crazy start. The idea of being carjacked alone is terrifying. And I am sure that this story is not just about a normal carjacking. So I'm very interested to see the road that we go down. But I'm already kind of like on pins and needles because that's a fear of mine. You know, you don't want to be in an area you're not familiar with or even an area you are familiar with. And then all of a sudden somebody's trying to take you or your vehicle, something like that. So it's definitely piquing my interest. Yeah, and there's a couple of things that I found as I was researching as far as like, I guess the area of Knoxville is very separate. You have, I'm just going to say, for instance, like East or West Knoxville. And I read about it, but I didn't think that it really made such a big impact on how the story came to. But it was basically Davidson and this Chipman house was on what we would call the bad part of town. And Shannon and Chris were in a more predominantly wealthy part of town. And so it was basically like, how did this young couple end up on this bad part of town? So it was really interesting because it was basically, when I was reading about it, one of the worst carjackings in history. That's crazy. Yeah. The couple was taken to Davidson's house on Chipman Street, where these next details are quite disturbing. 
Christopher was raped by at least one perpetrator. He was then forced to walk barefoot with a dog leash wrapped around him to a nearby railroad track in only a t-shirt and underwear. He was gagged with a sock and a shoelace wrapped around his face, and once he was at the railroad tracks, his hands and feet were bound together. He was shot three times in the head and the neck. The perpetrators then doused him in gasoline and left him to burn. Oh my God. That's awful. Oh, just wait. Just wait. You're walking a man on a dog leash in his socks and underwear to a railroad track and nobody notices or says anything. If I looked out my window and that's what I saw, the first thing that I would be doing is calling the police, you know, and just being like, what is going on? Yeah, and as like some of the testimonies come, it seems like this Chipman Street must have been kind of not really rural, but I don't think there was a lot around it because one of the witnesses um, was like a sanitation worker and he was just like sitting at this place, which was by the house. And all this did happen in the wee hours of the morning, I should mention. Okay, I got you. Meanwhile, Shannon was held hostage by Vanessa Coleman in the Chipman Street house while the men set off to kill Christopher. When the men returned, they aggressively raped and beat Shannon for hours. She was tied to a chair and orally raped repeatedly by Davidson and his brother Latelvis Cobbins. She had been beaten in the head with extensive hemorrhaging and kicked in the vagina with obvious damage. She suffered bruising and severe carpet burns. Prior to killing her, they poured bleach down her throat, scrubbed her body, including her vaginal area. She was then bound in the fetal position with bedding and strips of curtains from the house. Her face was covered with a small plastic bag and her body was stashed in five larger trash bags. She was then stuffed inside a trash can and covered in sheets and left to die. While the young couple was left for dead, Davison and his crew continued on with their lives. Now with the car and personal belongings of Shannon and Chris, Davison was seen wearing Newsome shoes and using his cell phone. Items of Shannon's were found in the presence of Davison's girlfriend, Daphne Sutton, which he had broken up with a few days prior. It just seems like so much... It's disgusting. I kind of wrote these out a little less um, vulgar, I should say. And a lot of the articles that I have read talked about just like the terror people had, the PTSD from reading it. Some people couldn't even finish reading the story. And it gets a little more gruesome and as more details come out. But this was just supposed to be a simple carjacking. And all of a sudden, four people have turned into this like gruesome, sexual, I don't even know what to call it. Yeah, and I will say a carjacking, even though I don't believe you should carjack someone, the reasoning behind a carjacking makes sense. Your car is worth money. I want your vehicle. Give me your vehicle. You know, I'll take it to a chop shop or take the rims off and get, you know, what the rims are worth or, you know, sell it for parts, pieces, things like that, where I'm interested to see if we dive into exactly what led this down the road from being just a normal carjacking into a crime that is as grisly and gruesome because I just don't understand it. Yeah, and so I didn't mention a lot of the dates and stuff before, but basically this all happened the night of January 7th into the wee hours, mornings of January 8th. So it was on a weekend. And so all this kind of just takes place in a few days' time from the time that everything starts to the time that they start the investigation and everything. So let's talk about who Shannon Christian is. She was born on April 29th, 1985 in Nacogdoches, Texas. 
She moved to Tennessee with her family in 1997, and she was a graduate of Farragut High School in 2003. At the time of her death, she was a senior at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, majoring in sociology and planning to graduate in December of 2007. She was only 21 years old. Christopher Newsom was born September 21st, 1983 in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he was said to be a star baseball player at his high school, Halls High School, that he graduated in in 2002. After high school, he attended technical college and became a local carpenter, and he sadly died at the age of 23. So just such a young couple with their lives lost to just senseless behavior. Yeah, I mean, if Shannon was still alive, we'd be the same age, which is... Old? No, not old. Back off me, bro. (laughs) No, it's just crazy. You know, 21 is just so young, and to think about, you know, it feels like forever ago because I am super old that I was 21. So just to think about everything that I've experienced from 21 to now, and then to think that she didn't have the opportunity to experience those things is pretty sad. Yeah, and they were just a couple sitting in the parking lot. You know, she had the door open, obviously facing him, you know, as he was standing at the driver's side door, and they were just kissing, hugging, whatever, you know, young couples do, and all of a sudden you're looking at guns, and the next thing you know, you're being tortured in someone, some stranger's home, not knowing where your boyfriend is, where your girlfriend is, and what's going to happen next. So let's dive into the investigation. So the first sign that something was wrong was when the couple never met their friends at the birthday party. The friends had texted and called and got no response. So later that evening, they went back to the apartment complex where they left Shannon, and they were only to find Chris's truck and Shannon's car nowhere in sight. The couple's parents became worried the following morning when no one heard from Shannon or Chris, and Shannon didn't show up for her shift the next morning on January 8th. They immediately notified the police but were told that they needed to do the search on their own which one I thought was very shocking. But I guess when you're in a college town and kids go missing, I feel like I've heard another other cases that like, oh, like they're just in college. They probably just like ran off, spent the night somewhere, slept in or whatever. Or like drank too much and didn't get up for their work shift in the morning. Right. But it almost seems as as if these two kids were not, not, I should say young adults were not considered like party animals or anything. So after being told that they needed to do the search on their own, they quickly put friends and family into action. They got records from Chris's cell phone and found that the last ping was around the Cherry Street phone tower located in the part of town that neither Chris nor Shannon would have ever gone to. The family began searching this neighborhood and quickly found Shannon's abandoned forerunner around 2 a.m. on January 8th. Once police were notified of the car being found, it was noted to have personal belongings missing, like her iPod, the charger, photos that she kept on the visor, The driver's seat was pushed all the way back, there was mud covering the floorboards, and it was full of Newport cigarettes, which neither Chris nor Shannon smoked. The police recovered an envelope from the car that had one fingerprint that belonged to LaMarcus Davidson, who resided at 2316 Chipman Street, which was only two blocks from where the stolen car was found. Meanwhile, Xavier Jenkins, who later testifies in court, was a dryer for Waste Connections. He arrived to work at 12.30 a.m. on January 7th. He noticed that the lights were on and a lot of activity was happening at the Chipman Street house. He saw the silver forerunner parked outside and later saw what appeared to be four black males slowly drive by him as if they were checking him out. Other witnesses reported hearing three loud pops in the direction of the train tracks around 1.45 a.m. Later that day, around 12.20 p.m., a Norfolk Southern Railroad employee found a charred body laying by the tracks. I know we've talked about that before when we talked about the Michigan Thrill Kill. But just the idea of like you're starting your work day and you just stumble across a body that's been burned and it's just 
laying there. You know, I can't imagine what that would be like to just stumble upon that. Yeah, it's also interesting. I bet you that like railroad track employees or railroad employees find a lot of random things on the side of tracks. Yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of shady things that go on on the railroad. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So finally, on the morning of January 9th, police arrive at 2316 Chipman Street to find the house abandoned. So this is just basically a day and a half, almost two days after Shannon and Chris have gone missing and a day after they have found the car and got the fingerprint from the envelope that's brought them to LaMarcus Davidson's house. Police then discovered the lifeless body of 23-year-old Shannon Christian thrown away like trash, mangled in a trash can inside of the home. Fingerprints and DNA were found throughout the house and on Shannon's body. Also inside the home were several of Chris and Shannon's personal belongings. Shell casings were found inside the house that matched the bullets used to kill Chris, a 22 caliber high-standard revolver. So now the manhunt begins. I am curious because with Chris, they walked him to the railroad tracks and why what they did to him was horrible. They still ended it fairly quickly for him, right? They shot him, killed him, left him there. So I'm wondering what it is about these people that instead of doing the same thing to Shannon, that they have to torture her the way that they did and then put her head in a plastic bag and like let her suffocate like that. I don't understand yeah. what it is that would cause them to do that. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in the forensics, but I'll kind of give a little bit of a spoiler. But she was said to still be alive for quite some time while she was in the trash can. Oh, Jesus. So it took some time for her to actually suffocate. Like I said, I took the gruesome, gory details down a notch for this one. Jeez. But we'll talk a little bit more about it in the forensic part of this. All right. So the police learn about phone calls between Eric Boyd and LaMarcus Davidson. They approach Boyd not knowing at this time his involvement in these heinous crimes. Boyd directs the police to an abandoned home where they find LaMarcus Davidson. At this vacant house, the police also recovered a pair of nine and a half Nike sneaker shoes, which belonged to Chris Newsom, and a 22 high standard revolver. Davidson was then interrogated about the murders, but told the police multiple stories. First, he claimed that he knew nothing about the murders. Then he said that Cobbins and Thomas came to his house around 10 p.m. on Friday or Saturday, saying that they carjacked some people who were still in the vehicle. He claims he left his house after seeing the couple tied up. He said he then returned home about 20 minutes later and spoke with Shannon, who said, quote, she didn't want to die. He reports that he wiped the forerunner clean and went to sell drugs out of it, and he claimed that he never raped Shannon. On January 11th, George Thomas, Latelvis Cobbins, and Vanessa Coleman were all arrested in Lebanon, Kentucky. Police seized a computer that Thomas and Cobbins had been viewing news reports of the murders. The police also found a purse that had several of Shannon's personal belongings, including a makeup bag and a change purse. Latelvis Cobbins' statement was that he, his brother, LaMarcus Davidson and Eric Boyd were going to an apartment complex to meet a girl. When they arrived, they saw the SUV with the female talking to a male with the door open. Cobbins claimed that Davidson and Boyd carjacked them and ordered him to drive back to the Chipman Street house. Cobbins continues to try to plead his innocence by stating that Davidson took the woman into a bedroom and Boyd drove away with the male. Boyd returned to the house without the male in tow and he denies any sexual intercourse with the female. Vanessa Coleman claims that she was present in the home during the crimes but that she was held hostage by the male perpetrators. Later, a journal was discovered and confirmed Vanessa Coleman's handwriting that stated a journal entry from January 9th that said, quote, Last night was one of a kind. We stayed with a crackhead that is cool as hell. It snowed a little bit, but already melted. 
Let's talk about adventures. I had one hell of an adventure since I've been in the big Tennessee. It's a crazy world these days, but I love the fun adventures and lessons I've learned. It's going to be a long, interesting year, end quote. Oh, Jesus. So not only did she document about the event, saying that it was going to be a long, interesting year, she enjoyed what she's learning. She had a hell of an adventure? Mm-hmm. That's insane to me. Like, these are insane people. The other thing that I think is really interesting is that everyone's kind of pointing the finger at each other. Like nobody's, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, he did this, but she did that. But yeah, I was here, but no, I didn't do that. So it's a lot of he said, she said. They wouldn't let me leave, but it was a great time. Let's jump into the trial. All four suspects, Davidson, Cobbins, Coleman, and Thomas were indicted in Knox County and all tried separately. The trial started in May of 2008. At this time, Boyd was not on trial for these crimes. 46 total charges were brought against all of them, including felony murder, first-degree murder, aggravated robbery, kidnapping, aggravated rape, murder, and theft. Cobbins, Davison, Coleman, and Thomas all faced the death penalty. Eventually, Eric Boyd was charged with accessory after the fact for hiding and helping Davison evade arrest. All the trials were under Judge Richard Bumgardner which usually we don't talk about the judges too often, but we got a surprise in this story. Shout out to the bomb gardener. So I found two testimonies that I think were pretty interesting that kind of puts all the cases together and kind of fills in the gaps and puts the story all in one. I mean, obviously they have enough physical evidence that they have already so far found with finding Shannon's property in the home, finding her in Davidson's home, finding Davidson's girlfriend having, you know, Daphne having some of her her makeup bag and coin purse and all of that. But I think these um, witness testimonies kind of, you know, help further make their case. So I mentioned Xavier Jenkins earlier. He was the witness who had saw the silver forerunner with the four black men in it earlier while he was on his shift at 1230 at night. So Mr. Jenkins, again, was an employee of a business located next to the Chipman Street house. He testified that around 1.30 a.m. on January 7th, 2007, he saw a silver forerunner with his parking lights on stopped in front of the Chipman Street house when he reported to work that night. He noted that there was a white car parked behind the forerunner and a lot of activity happening in the home. He reported the four black males were seen driving that forerunner, and later in the morning, he saw the forerunner sitting parked back near the Chipman Street house. So then another testimony comes from Nicole Mathis, who is the cousin of Eric Boyd. She testified that on January 4th or 5th, she loaned her cousin Eric Boyd her white Pontiac Sunbird. On Monday, January 8th, she went to her aunt's apartment, which was Eric Boyd's mother's house, to get her car back from Eric. When she went to start the car, Boyd told her that her car was broken down and fluid began to pour from the engine. Once realizing that the car was not working, she gathered her personal belongings from the car. She noted a bag of bullets under the front passenger seat. She threw the bullets away because she didn't want them to be in her possession. At this time, she reports hearing Eric Boyd on the phone stating, quote, I might be in some trouble. She testified that she did not know Lamarcus Davidson, nor had she ever been to the Chipman house. It was later revealed that the white car Mr. Xavier Jenkins reported seeing was indeed Nicole Mathis' Pontiac Sunbird. So we're going to get into some of the forensics here. So we're going to talk about Shannon first. So according to the autopsy results, Shannon had been repeatedly and violently raped vaginally, orally, and sodomized. They tried to clean her vaginal area and mouth with bleach to remove any DNA evidence. 
The DNA analysis showed presence of Lamarcus Davidson and Latelvis Cobbin sperm in her mouth, vagina, and on items of her clothing. Further examination proved that Shannon was alive when she was placed in the trash can. She was tied in a way that she could not breathe nor try to get out of the trash can, and the cause of death was positional asphyxiation. It's heartbreaking to think that this child, because she's 21, right? But, like, right. I don't know if you remember the decisions you were making at 21. Like, I wouldn't have called myself an adult. I was still very much a kid. And to think that this kid has just gone through this terribly traumatic thing, and then you're put in this trash can where you're still alive, but you can't get out, and just thinking about the amount of suffering and panic that must have happened before she suffocated, it just... It's like nightmare fuel. You know what I mean? It's just so heartbreaking that that would happen to anyone. Yeah, it's actually really devastating. And the medical examiner testified in court that Shannon had died after hours of sexual torture, sustaining severe head injuries and suffering severe injuries to her vagina, anus, and mouth due to sexual assaults. It's like all of them just like gang banged her and just stuck her in a trash can and like just let her there to sit there to think about what just happened to her. It's just disgusting. The forensics for Christopher Newsom showed that his face had been wrapped in a sweatshirt and a sock was stuck in his mouth with a shoelace wrapped around the sock in the back of his neck. He was shot three times, the right side of his head, the right side of his neck, and once in the back, and he too had been sodomized. Man. Yeah, so let's talk about these perpetrators and their charges and their sentencing. Um, So I just kind of divided it up by each perpetrator. So George, a.k.a. Detroit Thomas, in December of 2009, he was found guilty on multiple counts, and the jury returned a life sentence without the possibility of parole on each of the four capital convictions. You don't really hear so much about George and what his role was, but I'm assuming that he took part in the raping. And of course, he was also in the car when they were carjacked, and he was just along for the ride. He was Latelvis's friend that he brought along, and then Vanessa was also Latelvis's girlfriend. Now, was he George Detroit Thomas because he was from Detroit? Did they say anything about I imagine you would probably have to be from there for that to be your nickname in Tennessee. Well, Latelvis's nickname is Rome, and he's not from Rome, unless there's a Rome somewhere in Tennessee. There's not. There's a Rome, Georgia. But Latelvis, okay, maybe, because Latelvis is Lamarcus's brother. I'm George Detroit Thomas. Oh, are you from Detroit? No, I'm from Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) Could be. Could very well be. You never know. So Latelvis Rome Cobbins, who is also Lamarcus Davidson's brother, on August 25th, 2009, was found guilty of the murders of Shannon and Christopher. Cobbins faced the possibility of the death penalty because he was convicted of first-degree felony murder in the case of Shannon. He was found guilty of facilitating the murder of Christopher, but he was acquitted of Christopher's rape. And on August 26th, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. LaMarcus Slim Davidson, a.k.a. the ringleader in all of this, in October of 2009 was found guilty and jurors unanimously found Davidson should receive the death penalty on all the four capital charges, two first-degree felony murder charges and two premeditated first-degree murders of 
Shannon and Christopher. So in June of 2010, he was sentenced to 80 years for the other charges related to the murders. And Judge Bumgarner said that the crime was, quote, one of the most incredibly outrageous, cruel, and inhumane cases the court has ever seen. He also said how people can engage in this type of conduct is just unexplainable and that there really is no sentence great enough to punish you for the conduct you have been convicted of. The Tennessee Supreme Court affirmed Davidson's conviction and sentenced to death in 2016. As for Vanessa Coleman, who is the girlfriend of Latelvis Colbins, she was granted immunity by federal authorities for testimony in the federal case of the carjacking, but the state's court ruled that the federal grant of immunity could not extend to the state charges of murder and rape. So basically, she was granted immunity from the federal level, but she was also going to be charged from the state level. In May of 2010, she was acquitted of first-degree murder and found guilty of the lesser charges. And in July of 2010, she was sentenced to 53 years in prison. During the sentencing, Shannon's father stated, For me, you personally took my baby. You took my opportunity to say yes to a young man one day. You took my wedding dance away. You took my opportunity to hold her child, my grandbaby. Which I'm sure he thought would strike pretty hard for her, given that she was the only woman involved in this case. Yeah, and I mean, just imagining being the parents of Shannon. I have to say, when I first started hearing you break it down and saying that she was granted immunity at first, I was so pissed. Like, my initial reaction was just like, what? Mm-hmm. And then 53 years is not nothing, but it definitely doesn't seem like enough, especially for the way that she was bragging in her diary and writing about, like, what a crazy and wonderful experience it was. It's just... Yeah, and what she was learning. Like, she was along for the ride and learning something that she would do again is kind of how I took that. Like, she's learning from this crackhead, as she called him, and that she was going to do this stuff again. You know, she was learning tricks on the street, and this is what she was going to do for a living. It's disgusting. It really is. So Eric E. Boyd was found guilty in April of 2008 in federal court of being an accessory to a fatal carjacking and of failing to report the location of a known fugitive. Boyd was the first to go to trial and the only suspect not charged with murder. He was sentenced to a maximum of 18 years in federal prison and is currently incarcerated at the Federal Correctional Institution in Yazoo City, Mississippi. So all the defendants in the four state cases appealed their convictions. The sentencing judge, Richard Bumgarner, one of Knox County's three criminal court judges, was forced to resign from the bench in March of 2011. So this is where the real uh, kicker comes. So Judge Bumgarner admitted to a drug addiction and purchasing prescription pain medications from convicts. He was also accused by a woman of trading legal favors for sex during breaks in court sessions. Judge Bumgarner pleaded guilty to official misconduct. It was found that his ability to conduct trials had been impaired during his prior two years on the bench, and he was disbarred in September of 2011. So in December of 2011, Judge John Kerry Blackwood granted new trials for all four state defendants after the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation showed Bumgarner was likely impaired while presiding over these trials. Can you imagine being the family of Shannon and Christopher and, like, We've talked about it before, but someone going to prison for this, it doesn't take that pain away. It doesn't make things better, but it's something, right? And then Mm -hmm. to find out that the judge that you've got is buying Roxy's or Oxycontin from whoever. and From people like LaMarcus Davidson. Right. And then soliciting people, you know, to be like, hey, I'll get you out of this traffic ticket. You know, if you reach under the robe, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's... Mm-hmm. I would be infuriated as a parent to think that because you couldn't keep your 
stuff together. Now the people who killed my daughter and my son may walk. Yeah, and the fact that they're going to have to potentially sit through trials again and go through all the gruesome details over and over and over again. And as someone who has sat on a double murder trial um, jury, this podcast is very mild compared to what actual murder court looks like. It is gruesome. You get all the details. You see all the things. And it's it's hard to watch. It's hard to see. It's hard to hear. So I can only imagine what these poor parents are going through again, knowing that just because of this judge's addiction, that these terrible, terrible criminals can, one, potentially be found not guilty, and two, have the chance of doing this to other family members again, you know? It's crazy. Also, I think we missed a real opportunity in calling this podcast Murder Court. I think <laughs> I really like Chuck the Logs, but I think Murder Court might have been a little... A little bit of a stronger name. <laughs> Murder court. <laughs> Murder court. Murder court. Courts in session. We just have gavels. Hey, hearey, hearey. Right. So, let's see. Judge Blackwell set retrials between June and November of 2012 pending appeals. Only Coleman set bail at $1 million as she was the only one with the sentence who had the possibility of parole. Due to double jeopardy, the defendants faced at maximum the sentences they had already received, and thus only Davidson was eligible for capital punishment. Prosecutors conceded Bumgarner had been impaired during Coleman's trial, but appealed the decision to retry Davidson, Cobbins, and Thomas. The decision to hold retrials for them was affirmed in a 2-to-1 decision by the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals on April 13th. In May of 2012, the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned Blackwell's ruling ordering new trials for Cobbins, Davidson, and Thomas, saying that a trial's judge misconduct outside the courtroom does not necessarily require a new trial unless the misconduct is shown to have affected the trial's proceedings, and that its decisions should not be construed or condoning or excusing of Bumgarner's misconduct. Judge Blackwood was asked to consider again the motions for new trial. So in June of 2012, Judge Blackwood again granted new trials for Davison, Cobbins, and Thomas, basing his decision on the 13th juror rule. So do you know what the 13th juror rule is, John? I don't. What is the 13th juror rule? So basically, I think the 13th juror means that the trial judge who must determine whether the minds of reasonable jurors, a contrary verdict, should have been reached. But in my mind, that makes no sense to me, and I don't know if it's because I'm ill, but I take it that, like, if the jury doesn't really understand or make the right decision, that this 13th juror, which is the judge, can take all the evidences and the testimonies and everything and make his own verdict. Well, it almost seems like if for some reason the judge didn't agree with the verdict, they may have the ability to overrule that verdict, and so... If that would have happened, would Judge Baumgartner have been in his right mind to make that decision if he had needed to do so? But again, to me, that kind of comes back to what the judges who denied the appeal were saying was that his behavior doesn't really come into effect because all the evidence was presented, what he was doing away from the court didn't seem to affect the the outcome of the trial. So ultimately, retrials were denied for Cobbins and Davidson. Davidson, of course, he was the one who was the ringleader and got the death penalty, and Cobbins was basically life in prison without the possibility of parole. But it was granted for Thomas and Coleman. So basically, the lesser of the two got retrials. 
So now let's talk about the verdicts of the retrials. So it's really just Vanessa and George Thomas. So Vanessa, she faced the same charges as in her first trial. And in November of 2012, she was convicted by a jury of facilitation of aggravated kidnapping, facilitation of rape, and the facilitation of murder of Shannon Christian, but not the murder of Christopher Newsom. Coleman's lawyers argued that she should receive a 20-year sentence while prosecutors asked for the maximum sentence of nearly 50 years. Judge Blackwood sentenced Coleman to 35 years in prison on February 1st of 2013, minus credit time already served. Specifically, he sentenced her to 25 years for the facilitation of Shannon's murder, six years for the facilitation of kidnapping, and four years for the facilitation of rape. Again, 35 years just does not seem like long enough. Oh, well, just wait. Just wait. So currently, Vanessa Coleman is in the Tennessee prison for women in Nashville, and she is serving her 35-year sentence. She was eligible for parole in 2017, and her sentence expires in April of 2036. It is said that her sentence is being reduced for good behavior by 16 days a month, making her eligible for parole again in October of 2014. However, she was denied parole. She was denied parole again in December of 2020, and now she's not eligible to sit in front of the parole board again until 2030. But it seems that Shannon and Christopher's parents come to these parole hearings and, you know, plead their case as to why they shouldn't be granted parole. So they're still very active in trying to keep their children's murderers in prison. Yeah, and, you know, for me, I would say, again, if I were the parents of Shannon or or Christopher, that while you may be a model prisoner and while you may truly be sorry for what you've done and you, you may have had time to reflect on that and, you know, come to come to terms with the fact that what you did was absolutely terrible. That's great. And I would be accepting of that. And that's awesome. But when you commit a heinous act in the way that you did, there's a penalty for it. So I would definitely be like, Hey, I'm glad, you know, awesome. I'm glad that you're, you know, you're working on turning stuff around. And when your 35 years is up, good luck. But I'm going to make sure you do every minute of that 35 years. Yeah. And I just can't imagine what judge would grant someone like her parole. Because one, this was already like a big national case. I feel like it would just bring more people into like revolt and it would just be a whole thing and just more drama. But even then, like what kind of person would see what someone is capable of doing and give them the option to be released from prison? And just having that on your conscious that, oh, I let this person out and then she just did X, Y, and Z when I could have just left her in prison. Yeah, I think the other thing that would be hard for me, too, is like she was also a kid, right? Like Mm -hmm. when everything happened. So yeah, nobody was very old. Right. And it's it's hard to let a moment of someone's life when they're that age then define who they are, you know, for the rest of their existence. So again, I would be like, hey, I'm glad. Like, hopefully when you get out, you can use the things that you've learned and you can become a productive member of society and maybe do things to help people. But I want you to do that after you've served every second of the time that you were sentenced to because you still took my child away from me. 
As for George Thomas, in May of 2013, his retrial ended in a verdict of guilty on all 38 counts. He was resentenced to life in prison by the jury, but with the possibility of parole after 51 years. On June 4, 2013, the judge sentenced Thomas to two life sentences consecutive for the murders and 25 years multiple concurrent for the rapes. In January 2016, Thomas appealed to the Supreme Court, but the court did not agree to hear the case. George Thomas is serving a 50-year sentence at the Northeast Correctional Complex, and his sentence ends in May of 2053. Eric Boyd, in August of 2019, the jury found him guilty on nearly all charges, including premeditated first-degree murder and rape against both victims. He was also convicted on charges of carjacking, robbery, and kidnapping. The judge immediately sentenced Boyd to life in prison as this was automatic for a murder conviction. Boyd's request for a new trial was denied later in 2019. As for Latelvis Cobbins, he is currently serving a life sentence at the Northwest Correctional Complex, and Lamarcus Davidson was sentenced to death on October 2009 and is incarcerated at the Riverbend Maximum Security Institution. So despite the heinous crimes, there was some good that came from their murders. The Shannon Gale Christian Foundation was established, and they have a memorial golf tournament every year um, in her memory to provide scholarships for a Farragut High School graduate that's planning to attend the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And then a foundation has also been established in Christopher Newsom's name and holds an annual memorial baseball tournament. And this scholarship is granted annually to a graduating Halls High School baseball player. Also, there were two new laws introduced in 2014 as a result of this case. The Chris Newsom Act was introduced to eliminate the need for a judge's signature on a jury verdict after the delivery of a unanimous verdict. This eliminates the 13th juror rule, which stipulated that the judge must validate a jury's verdict. Had such law been in place during the case, the retrials would have never taken place. The Shannon Christian Act restricts attorneys and defendants in attempting to portray a victim in a negative light, such as making allegations about their behavior. During the trial, Davidson had alleged that his victims had come to his house to buy drugs, and according to Shannon's mother, her family felt great pain as a result of listening to the defense attorney question Shannon's character during multiple trials. Meanwhile, due to laws protecting the accused, the jury was not allowed to be informed that Davidson had a previous carjacking conviction. So I think that the family has really been a strong advocate for both Shannon and Christopher and helped to have these laws put in place and are really trying to make a difference in kids' lives by setting up scholarship funds in memory of their children. And again, this has been more of a, a heinous crime than I anticipated, but everything I read was like, oh, a carjacking gone bad. And this carjacking went really, really, really bad. And I definitely agree with you. I think the strength that you must have as a parent to say these terrible things happened to my child, it could be so easy to kind of turn inward. I mean, you see people get divorced. You see people take their own lives. You see people turning to, you know, drinking and drugs where these parents were basically saying, I'm going to set up memorial funds. I'm going to make sure that my child's name lives on by making sure that they help somebody else achieve their dream. And then laws like this don't happen or, or come into fruition without the advocacy of the parents as well. So it is really admirable and it's really respectable that they were able to take that grief and that trauma and that tragedy and somehow find a way to find a silver lining in it. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't even imagine. And I couldn't even imagine like reliving it over and over and over for so many years after the cases had concluded the first time. So let's get down to the deadbolt test. 
So you got me with this one. Uh, as we were going through and you were telling me about the story and filling me on the details, you know, I couldn't help but think there have been so many times that my wife and I have been sitting in a parking lot. Making out. Yeah, we're making out of cemeteries. <laughs> no, but I mean, like just sitting in the, in the parking lot, you know, eating dinner or talking or, you know, listening to the radio, something like that. So to think that something like this could happen in the blink of an eye, your life can change. I think that's very scary to me. And then also just the details of the murder. You know, thinking about Chris, what was going through his head as he was walking to those train tracks. Or, again, thinking about what was running through Shannon's head and that panic and that fear as you're laying in a trash can, probably struggling to get out. And then, again, you know, things just slowly fade to black. And then to think that these killers almost got off because there was some reckless judge. So, for me, I mean, this is pretty high for me. I'm going to put this at a nine because I think – Every detail about this just hits really hard. I don't know if I'm going to check my deadbolt tonight, but the next time I'm eating fast food in my car, I'm definitely checking my car locks. That's 100% for sure. I think I'm going to rate it about a nine myself. You know, here in New Orleans lately, we're having a lot of carjackings happening in the city. One that might have made national news of an older woman who was killed because of this carjacking. She was dragged and her arm ultimately got ripped off. And this just happened last month or so. And so it's making a lot of news and a lot of uproar in our city. And we're having multiple carjackings multiple times a day. A lot of them are happening in broad daylight. And so I find that now when I'm out driving, that I'm very aware of what's happening around me. I'm constantly looking at who's standing on the street corner. Is there anyone in the in you know behind me? Does anybody look suspicious in the car sitting behind me? What about the car next to me? You know, so I feel like right now in my personal life, I'm on edge when I'm in my car every time. And so after I did this case, it really was a little unsettling for me just because it's something that's happening so frequently and becoming such a huge problem in my city right now that I'm at a nine. Like you said, I'm probably not going to go check my deadbolt, but I'm definitely always making sure that my car doors are locked, my windows are up, and then I'm just always looking around at what's happening around me while I'm in my car. So yeah, this is a nine for me. Olivia, I definitely think you picked a good one. We both put it in a nine, but we want to know where does the carjacking of Shannon and Christopher fall on your deadbolt test? You have to let us know. We're on the socials. You can find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. We're on Twitter at Check the Locks. You can join our Facebook group, Olivia. The last time we were recording, we're like, oh, we're almost at 250 members. We're over 300. People are amazing in this group. We get to hang out and interact with people. It's just been so much fun getting to know people and people posting gifts and all sorts of silly things. So if you like the episode, if you you know gave it a listen, you want to let us know where it falls on your deadbolt test, please let us know. And speaking of our amazing listeners, Olivia, I think we should read a five-star review. What do you think? This is my favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> this is why you push through being sick. This is why I push through. So, Olivia, who is our five-star review from this week? So this one was tough, you know, and I think that this week's goes to Kenny. Kenny! <laughs> yes. So they said, I really love this podcast and believe this is my favorite one. I was hooked after the first episode due to my love for crime. I'm glad they put this in my recommended. So, Kenny! Kenny! <laughs> Let us know who you are and uh, get back to us and we'll send you some cool swag from the podcast. And Kenny, thank you so much for listening. We are super glad that we got put in your recommendations as well. Just like Olivia said, hit us up on the socials. 
Let us know that you left the review. We would be more than happy to send you some stickers, magnets. We got all sorts of stuff. If you are not a social person, you can definitely find us at checkthelockspod.com. Hit that contact button. Send us an email. Let us know as your review. We'll make sure that we get something out there for you. Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the show, how can they do that? You need to go to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a five-star review. And hopefully you'll be the lucky winner who gets your five-star review read next week. That's right, Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. So guys, that is this week's episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with us as we dived into another truly terrifying true crime case. We will see you again next week, but until then, don't forget to check the locks. We'll see you next week.